After his arrest, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to the people, I present him to you, but I want you to know that I do not find him guilty of any crime. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, How can you ignore me? Are you not aware that I have the authority to either free you or crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you pardon this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. Anyone setting himself up as king defies Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. And he said to the Jews, Here is your king. They cried out, Take him away, crucify him. Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the people read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested, saying to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, 
They took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it up, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves and for my clothing, they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And another passage of scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Two thousand years ago, a man died and the world was changed. That he was a good man, no more than that, the best of men, makes it all the more tragic that he died. That he was an innocent man executed by the state adds another layer of tragedy. That he was turned on by his own people, betrayed by one of his closest friends, abandoned by his followers in the time of need adds Yet another layer, if this is anything, it's proof that karma isn't the way of the universe. This is the one who said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near and he should know because he brought it. The one who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and actually did it. The one who said, your sins are forgiven, now go and sin no more, and then made that possible. The one who healed the sick and 
touched the untouchable, who welcomed the outcasts, who was called a friend of sinners and wore it as a badge of honor because he came to seek and to save the lost. The one who challenged the religious and political and cultural systems and structures of the day, calling out injustice and oppression and marginalization as if the victims of those things actually had worth, actually mattered. This Jesus is dead. And not just dead, but executed. And not just executed, but crucified. The most inhumane method of execution available to the Roman Empire. It's hard to convey how brutal and humiliating crucifixion was for how common the symbol of the cross is today and how desensitized we have become to it. In those days, Romans in polite society, they did not talk about it. It was a shameful and a shaming act. Saved for violent criminals and slaves, and insurrectionists, folks inclined toward rebellion, messiahs. Nowadays, we hear the word messiah, and we probably automatically associate it with Jesus, the Christ. Christ comes from the Greek, Christos, and Messiah comes from the Hebrew, Mashiach, but they both mean the same thing. They mean anointed one, chosen one. Now, we tend to think of the Messiah in terms of a spiritual leader, but in the days of Jesus, the Messiah was understood to be a political leader. The one God would choose to deliver the people of God from their enemies, literally, not just figuratively, not just even spiritually, but literally rescuing them, saving them. And history tells us that there were quite a few Messiahs, or at least would-be Messiahs. They were Robin Hood-type revolutionaries fighting back against the oppressors, stirring up the common folks. There was a guy called Thutis. Thutis had 400 men. That's a lot more than 12. But Thutis and his movement were crushed by the Romans. Thutis, it turns out, was not the Messiah. There was a guy called Judas of Galilee. Judas of Galilee led an armed revolt against the Romans around 6 A.D., he had an army. They raided Herod's palace and they looted the royal armory. He was such a threat that Rome dispatched two legions, up to 20,000 people to deal with him. Judas the Galilean, it turned out, was not the Messiah either. Jesus was also a Galilean. He grew up in Nazareth, about four miles from where Judas would, was headquartered. Jesus would have been a young boy around that time, learning how to be a carpenter from his father. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Romans, when they uh, crushed Judas's rebellion, they rounded up his followers, and they had as many as 2,000 of them nailed to the cross. 2,000 crosses in the Galilean countryside. That's an image that would stick in your head as a young boy. The message is clear. This is what happens to those who challenge Rome. This is what happens to would-be messiahs. If you try, you will fail, and we will hang you up for the whole world to see that you are not the messiah, the king of the Jews. Is the cross worth it? Is public humiliation worth it? 
Is death worth it? I imagine Jesus remembered those 2,000 crosses on Thursday, on Thursday night in a garden called Gethsemane just outside of Jerusalem, faced with a choice about what to do. Stepping out of this story for a moment, I'm reminded of another garden where another choice was made. Where God told Adam and Eve, trust me, and they didn't. Where they had an opportunity to make the right decision, the life-giving decision, the, the loving decision, and, and they didn't. Where they instead made the selfish decision, the self-serving decision, the decision that said to God, we know better than you what's good, good for us. So we're going to do things our way. They sinned choosing not to trust God. It's the decision humanity has made over and over and over again. It's why the disease of sin has screwed up and twisted and malformed so much in our world and in our history and in our lives and in this story. Sin, you see, is not simply doing bad things or not doing good things. Sin is not allowing God to be God and not being who we were made. God as our creator, our heavenly father, our sustainer, our redeemer, the one whom our souls were made to love and be loved by. And us, as his creation, his, his, his image bearers, his stewards, his servants, his ambassadors, his children. We were made to enjoy life to the full, to live the eternal kind of life, the way in whole and loving and open and unbroken relationships with God and with one another. We were created to reflect and represent the God who desires only good things for his creation and who exists in perfect, loving, others-serving community, Father, Son, and Spirit, modeling that for us. We were commissioned to steward the resources we have been blessed with talents, our abilities, our relationships, our families, our possessions, our world. But too often we fall far short. Too often we don't trust what God says about reality, about himself, about us. Too often we sin, and as the Apostle Paul said, the wages of sin is death. You see, sin always results in death of some kind. A child experiences the trauma of violence, whether with words or with weapons, in their school or on their streets or in their home, and they learn that all is not well in the world. Innocence dies. A girl goes out on a date with a boy she really likes, but he takes advantage of her because he wants satisfaction or control or something. The girl learns that all is not well in the world. Trust dies. A young person comes to D.C. to pursue public service to serve the common good, but soon realizes that the only way to make things happen is to cut corners and look out for number one. Hope dies. A 30-something who once imagined having a family experiences only rejection because it turns out they don't meet someone else's unrealistic and selfish expectations. A dream dies. 
Every time we sin, we choose a reality opposed to that for which we were made. We choose by our actions to be separated from God, the creator and the designer and source of life. When we lie or when we ignore someone in need or when we hurt those who care about us or when we choose to gratify ourselves at the expense of others, when we choose anything other than life with God, we choose death. In his garden, Jesus could have chosen another path, a path of comfort or convenience, of safety or security. But instead, Jesus, in choosing the path of love, shows us what God is like. Jesus, in choosing the path of putting others first, shows us what we were made for. Jesus, in choosing the path of self-sacrifice, even to the point of death, shows us what true love is. Jesus chose to become the sacrifice for us. In other words, Jesus chose death so that we might have life. God in Jesus absorbed and dealt with the effects of our sin, big and small, intentional and unintentional. He took it all upon himself. He took it all into himself so that we might be made new and reconciled with our Father. It was a, a beautiful exchange. The wages of sin is death, Paul says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In choosing death, in choosing his own death, Jesus chose the way of love and life for us. That's how God wanted to deal with the sin problem, by taking it on himself, by taking it upon himself. And so that's what Jesus did. Because the way of love is the way of choosing to surrender to the Father. It's the way of saying, I trust you, God. I, tr I trust what you say about me and about other people. I trust that you will provide for me. I trust that you will protect me. I trust that no matter what happens on this earth, you've got me. That's the only framework in which putting others first and loving your enemies and welcoming the outcasts and standing up for the marginalized and speaking up when it's risky and forgiving those who've hurt you and denying yourself and choosing to die makes any kind of sense. In Genesis, one of the results of humanity's disobedience is that the ground is cursed. Right? God says it will produce thorns and thistles. What kind of crown did King Jesus wear? crown of thorns. He quite literally wore the effects of human sin, little bits of cursed ground. The Roman soldiers put that crown on him and they hammered the nails into him. The Roman governor sentenced him to death by crucifixion. The Jewish leaders conspired to get rid of him and they incited the crowd to reject him. One of his closest friends betrayed him, another denied him, and the rest ran away in his time of need. But Jesus knew what was coming. He chose this way. He chose to do this. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so it was that as he hung on the cross on that Good Friday, he said, it is finished. Three words in English, but one word in Greek. You may know it. Tetelestai. In Jesus' day, that word, tetelestai, was very common. It was used in several ways. 
First it was used by a servant reporting to their master, Tetelestai, the work you gave me to do is finished. In John 17, Jesus prayed, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. The work of making God known. The work of showing the world what God is like. The work of inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth. The work of inviting all of creation into right relationship with its maker. And in that to discover its purpose. That work is finished. Second, the word was used by artists and writers. When a sculpture was done, a, a picture finished, a manuscript completed, that the creator would say to Telestai, it's finished. The story of creation, God had been writing. The tapestry of salvation, God had been weaving. The masterpiece of love, God had been crafting. Since before the dawn of time, each of these found its completion in the Son of God hanging on the cross. There on a hill outside of Jerusalem, Jesus said, it is finished because he knew that from his death would spring life for all. Third, the word was used by merchants. In ancient times, just like today, people would sometimes use credit to make purchases. They would incur debt that they would have to pay off. And when they had paid off their debt, when they had erased their debt, when whatever it was that they had purchased no longer had any payments to be made, the creditor would write that word on the document as a kind of receipt to tell us die, paid in full. The debt is no more. There is no more to be done. Jesus paid it all. Fourth, the word was used by priests. In Jesus' day, people brought animals to the temple in Jerusalem for sacrifice as a sign of their worship and their devotion to God and if they had sinned as a guilt offering. And according to the law of Moses, the animal had to be whole and uninjured and spotless. And so the priest would examine the animal. And if it was found to pass the test, he would declare to Telestai, meaning it is found suitable for sacrifice. Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, was found suitable to pay the price for our transgressions. And finally, the word was used by jailers and judges. In those days, when someone was convicted of a crime, they would have what was called a certificate of debt, which listed all the crimes of which they were convicted. And it was usually nailed to their cell door so that all could see. And when that person had served their sentence, the word to Telestai would be written across that certificate of debt and that document would be given to the criminal to show that all crimes had been paid for. Jesus chose to take the sin of the world upon his shoulders. For the first time in his life, he felt the separation from God that sin causes, creates. And not because of any transgression of his own. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians, When you were dead in your transgressions, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and he has nailed it to the cross. Tetelestai, the crime has been paid for. On Good Friday, as Jesus chose death, the work was completed. The masterpiece was finished. 
The tapestry found its golden thread. The mission was accomplished. The job was done. The sacrifice was offered once for all. And the price was paid in full. So that all that remains is grace. So that all that remains is grace. I want to ask Courtney to come and read a prayer. Holy One, shock and save me with the terrible goodness of this Friday and drive me deep into my longing for your kingdom until I seek it first, not first for myself, but for the hungry and the sick and the poor of your children for prisoners of conscience around the world, for those I have wasted with my racism and sexism and ageism and nationalism and religionism. For those around this mother earth and in this city who this Friday know far more of terror than of goodness, that in my seeking first the kingdom for them as well as for myself, all these things may be mine as well. Things like a coat and courage and something like comfort. A few lilies in the field, the sight of birds soaring on the wind, a song in the night, and gladness of heart. The sense of your presence and the realization of your promise that nothing in life or death will be able to separate me or those I love from your love. In the crucified one who is our Lord, and in whose name and spirit I pray.